Good morning, Grace Chapel. My name is Beth Guckenberger, and it is so fun to be here with you guys this morning. I told Jeff this feels like I'm a bit like in your living room. I, this this particular church body has a long relationship with Back to Back Ministries, which is um, the organization that we served with for almost the last 15 years. Jeff and Debbie, um, I first met them when I was 18 years old, about 20 years ago. I was a high school senior. They had come fresh into the Midwest off that East Coast. Some great big ideas I wasn't so sure about. Here I am now living one of those big ideas. But um, our our appreciation for the Greer family and um, then eventually for this church body runs really deep on our way over here. My husband Todd and I were talking about if I had to just, I don't know, mark what most impresses me about the leadership of your um, church body, it's that they're kingdom thinkers. They don't necessarily care whose name is on it, who gets the credit for it, how it unfolds. They just want to continue to do things that build up the kingdom of God, and particularly because of where I minister to, um, to orphans in third world countries. And I, there are not enough words to explain how deeply grateful and appreciative we are that the our, our storyline and this storyline has intertwined um, and is now forever going to be connected. I, I am grateful. I, we were mentioning to each other all the ways in which um, Grace Chapel and specifically the Greer family have folded into what we do on a daily basis, how they've shared prayers and human resources. Uh, eight days after I moved to a foreign country in 1997, he brought a team of 30 people. I wasn't so totally equipped for that team, but we got off the ground running without a doubt. Financial resources. So many of you responded last year when we had a hurricane in our city of Monterey, Mexico, and sent a team of people to come out and help us rebuild after that devastation. <clears throat> I could go on and on. So thank you for being a part of a congregation that is concerned about a world larger than the geographic one you find yourself in today, but that is motivated and moved to make an impact in a world that's much, much bigger. I have literally hundreds of stories of ways in which um, we have gotten to know some folks from this body and, again, your leadership on foreign soil. I could entertain you for the next 30 minutes with those kinds of stories. Um, But I'm going to just skip and go right into what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to spend some time in four different passages, if the the timing all works out. We're going to be spending some time in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Mark, in the book of Exodus. But we're going to start off this morning in the book of Joshua. So if you have your Bibles with you, feel free to open that book up. We're going to start in Joshua chapter 1 on verse 8. And if you don't have your Bibles, look here behind me. But you're going to want yours out because we're going to write in it for a minute. This, this is a verse that if you ever went to Sunday school as a child, you possibly memorized for a gold star or a sticker or an extra cookie or something. And it goes like this. Do not let this book of the law, that's the scriptures here, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything that is written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. This last um, fall, I was able to go to Israel for a few weeks with a Bible teacher named Ray Vonderlaan, if any of you are familiar with him. And in there, while I was there, I learned a little fact about this particular verse from someone whose first language was Hebrew. The, the, the fact that I learned is if you have your Bible, take the word meditate and just circle it. And above the word meditate, we're going to write the original word that got translated into the word meditate. The original word in Hebrew is haga, H-A-G-A-H. 
<clears throat> and Haggah, if you think back to your high school English classes, it's an onomatopoeia. Remember onomatopoeias? Those are those words that sound like what they are. So the word hiss is an onomatopoeia, and the word pop is an onomatopoeia, and the word boom is an onomatopoeia. Well, in Hebrew, Haggah is an onomatopoeia, and it literally means as a lion consumes its prey. So no good Jew would say Haggah the way I'm saying Haggah right now because that doesn't sound like a lion's consuming anything. That kind of sounds like your kitty cat's eating its like kibble and bits or whatever they eat, you know. Haggah said correctly would sound like Haggah. I can't even do it, but they do it really loud. And Haggah, I should make you all do it with me, but you get the idea. So let's read the verse again with the meaning <coughs> as it was attended. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth but consume it like a lion would its prey so that you can be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. I, I understand how things can get kind of lost in translation. When I first moved to Mexico 15 years ago, I didn't speak a lick of Spanish. In fact, uh, one of my favorite verses comes from Zechariah 4.10. It says, and this is for someone here in this room. I can hear it in my head. Zechariah 4.10 says, do not despise these small beginnings. For the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. When we first moved to Mexico, I mean, holy cow, Todd and I went on this crazy mission trip with Jeff Greer and a bunch of high school students in the summer of 1996. Some of you have heard that story. We came back motivated by some of the things that we've seen, called we knew to serve on foreign soil on behalf of the orphan child, saved up. We were double income, no kids, that little season in life when you have more money than you really need, right? We saved one of those salaries in a bank account for a rainy day. And the other one we lived off of, a year later it rained. And we turned all that money into traveler's checks that we then drove three days in our Suzu Trooper from Cincinnati, Ohio, down to Monterey, Mexico, where we've lived ever since. I went into the bank on that very first um, week because our cash had run out. It was time to turn some of those traveler's checks into pesos so we could go to the grocery store. And there was like a great big thick glass window between me and the teller at the bank. And I didn't have any idea what to do. So I just stuck all the checks underneath there. They said American Express on them. They, that claim is that they got them all over the world, right? So I just wanted them to turn the little dollars into pesos. We, the lady gets into like this little squawk box so that I could hear her. And she yells to me, um, Tienes que firmar tu nombre aquí, por favor. But like, that was like Chinese. Like I just smiled at her like, okay, well, here's my chicks. And so she did what you might have done if you've ever tried to talk to someone in a foreign language, speak a little slower and a little louder. And she's like, Tienes que firmar tu nombre, por favor. Like nothing. I could hear some people kind of snickering behind me in line. And I'm like, this is not, got, this cannot be that hard. Like they told me at the bank I could just turn them in and they'll turn them into pesos. So I scoot them back underneath her. And then she's getting kind of mad at me, so she shortened what she said. She said, Firma tu nombre. Firma tu nombre. And I heard the word nombre in there. And I thought, oh, I've heard that word. I mean, I've only been there eight days, but I'm like, I've heard that word nombre. So I'm like, Todd, Todd, give me a piece of paper. And I wrote the word nombre on a piece of paper, which means name. And I stuck it up to the glass window. And the lady was like, yes, nombre. She sticks the checks back underneath and points to a line at the bottom of them. So I took a pen out and I signed all the, the checks with the word nombre, nombre, nombre. <laughs> Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. This year we will have transferred money to, into rupees and into naira and into pesos, millions of dollars in several continents. The Lord knew all of that when he sent some crazy girl with her life savings and traveler's checks to a foreign country. And 
I say all that because I know that things can get lost in translation. And so I'm sure the, the, the writers of the English Bible thought to themselves, if you just meditate on this word, then you'll understand what it has to say, and then you'll be prosperous and successful. But I'm telling you, all these years later, meditate sounds to me like maybe think about it for a few minutes in the morning. And with all of the work of the gospel that God has asked us to do, we need more than a few moments of meditation to come against the opposition that's trying to stop what we're up to. That the gospel, I always say, the God, you know you're in the middle of a gospel storyline when you are engaged in a restoration or a redemption or a reconciliation or a rescue or a repair. Those words, they, they embody the nature of Christ. And every one of those acts is, an, is opposed. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I feel myself opposed by, by the enemy, I think I take a few steps backward and say, well, it's not supposed to be this hard because God's supposed to have made a way, right? But I tell you, the, the, the very things that he will ask you to do will be that that is against the king of this world, and he will come against you. And the only weapon, the only tool, the only hope that you have in that process is, is, the, is the sword of the Spirit. This is the star of every show. And in order to use it and to know it and to be able to wield it against that which comes against you, you need to consume it like a lion would its prey. So it is inside of you, ready to be called out at any moment. Well, this last year I wrote a book called Relentless Hope, and I wrote it really in the aftermath of a book I wrote in 2008, which was called Reckless Faith. Reckless Faith was a book where I kind of wrote down eyewitness accounts of ways in which I had seen God miraculously move on behalf of the orphan child, which is the front lines of the ministry field I was working in. I saw him multiply food and break down doors. I saw him literally come to rescue and redeem and, re- and, re- and repair and reconcile these children to the body and these children to himself, and I wanted to, to talk about it. So I wrote it all down, but here's what happened. And after I wrote those things down, I would go and talk to places about them. And people would come up to me afterwards and say, that is so great that Jesus works that way for you. But I've, I've never seen him move like that before. It must be because you're in another country. Or it must be because you're a missionary. It must be because they're orphans. Because for me, that's not what it looks like. And I had all that kind of whirling around in my brain when I had a conversation with a dear friend of ours who had been in ministry about as long as we had. He and his wife had four children, and she became pregnant that year before with child number five, who in the midst of that pregnancy admitted to him was not his child, and indeed was that of a dear friend of theirs. And so he was telling us a little bit about what his year had entailed, and I said to him in the middle of it, man, you've got quite a story. And he said, yeah, but nobody really wants to hear my story. Nobody wants to hear my story. They don't put you in a microphone up in front of a church unless your prodigal child comes back or your cancer counts go down or your baby comes back to life or your wayward spouse returns. He's like, nobody wants to hear the story in the midst of the painfulness of it. And I told him that we had just gotten back from a funeral of a friend of ours, dear family friend of ours, who took his own life. And I was sitting about five rows back from the grieving family, and the pastor comes out on the stage, and I remember sitting in that pew thinking, oh, my heavens, I would not want his job. How is he going to bring comfort to us in the midst of this story? This is like, this is so painful. 
And he opens up his Bible and he reads to us out of Jeremiah chapter 15, verses 17 on. And it says in the NAS translation, if you can extract the precious from the worthless, then you can be my spokesman. And I remember sitting in that pew thinking, yes, that's what I'm feeling like right now. This is worthless. Most funerals you go to feel that way anyways. Like this is worthless. This is so hard that they've left our presence and company. But someone takes their own life. It's unbelievably worthless. And I like the fact that he wasn't trying to pretend it was something that it wasn't. But then he said to us, but if you can extract the precious from the worthless, then we can keep our head above the water. Then we can shine light in a place that's right now full of darkness. Then we can connect ourselves into that vine and stay afloat and stay alive. Then we have a story to tell a world that's watching us, curious how we're going to react in the midst of this. And not, the truth is, being a believer doesn't get us a pass from the worthless circumstances of life. We have worthlessness going on all around us, sometimes brought on by our own hand and other times brought on by the hand of someone in our life that we care about. But we, are not, we cannot escape worthlessness. But Jesus has told us if we can extract the precious from the worthless, then we can be his spokesman while we're still here on this earth. And so I told my friend that story and he said to me, okay, I hear that. And I said, could you just, let's rewind a minute. Tell me about some of the precious that you could extract from the worthlessness of the last six months. And so he began to talk to me about the intimacy that he had experienced with the Lord that he had never had beforehand. He began to talk to me about the inner healing he was experiencing as he was taking responsibility for his piece of that. He was telling me about the conversations and the relationships his children were developing with the Lord that felt to him like something they would not maybe have experienced otherwise. He began to talk about being involved in a community of believers. He began to talk about all the preciousness, and the whole tone kind of shifted. And it reminded me of the story of this last year. We had a, a church come visit us in Mexico. It's a very large church, if I said its name. You would probably either recognize it or recognize the name of the books the pastor had written from that church. This, this youth pastor came, and he, we were sitting at our kitchen table just sharing our stories. And he said, I said, how would you get to work at that place like that? And he just smiled, and he said, well, I was in youth ministry about 20 years. Year 19, I made some very poor moral choices. And as a result of those moral choices, I lost my ministry, I lost my wife, and I lost custody of my children. And I spent the next several years kind of drowning. I sold some insurance, tried to stay afloat, but the whole time I was missing ministry. I I am a youth minister in my court, and I was missing that game. So so I, I wrote a little cover letter telling my story, telling about what God had taught me as a result of the things I learned from my failures. And I talked about my experience, and I put it on one of those Christian job boards, hoping that some country church would want like a part-time volunteer twice a month in youth ministry, and somebody would give me a call and a shot. But he said, here's what happened. I got this phone call from this church. And I went through this great big series of interviews, and it all culminated with a final sit-down, me and this senior pastor. And he offered me the job that I have today, supervising all the youth ministries and all the satellite campuses that this church serves. And he said, I said to him, before I say yes, sir, I just got to ask you, why me? I know you read my cover letter. I know you know my story. What would make you want to minister alongside of me? And this pastor said, well, you know what? 
we found in the church that most people have a, a season of brokenness. And I like to endeavor and hire people who are on the other side of that season because I find it makes them better ministers of the gospel of grace. And I said to him, that's why your church has 20,000 people. Not because the pastor is so good at putting together a sermon on the stage, but because that's exactly who I'd want to spend Sunday mornings with. Somebody who understands that we are never taken out of the game. That there's no circumstance that we can find ourselves worthless or otherwise brought in by our own hand or somebody else's that counts us out of the game of the gospel storyline of reconciliation and redemption and restoration and repair and rescue. He is inviting each and every one of us to fully engage in that storyline all day, every day that he has left us here on this earth. And the passages that we're going to start with this morning is in Mark chapter 4 and 5. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open up to the end of Mark 4. I'll tell you a little bit about the story. But when I was in Israel, I was standing in this little town called Capernaum. And Capernaum is where Jesus and his disciples lived during their ministry years. It was kind of like their home base. It was really like the Oxford of that community. It's where the biggest... Um, schools were and where the most learned people were. And they would use that space to then kind of go out to the, the sites that they ministered. And one day, at the end of Mark 4, Jesus was standing with his disciples in Capernaum on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And I don't know what your picture is of the Sea of Galilee, but I always kind of imagined it like a sea. But it's not really that big. You can kind of see the whole shoreline from the edge. And if you stand in Capernaum, you can see the shoreline kind of naturally slopes up from the water into the hillside. Except for this one place directly across from Capernaum, it is this enormous cliff, like 50, 60, 70 feet tall, huge, huge cliff that dives down into the water. Jesus was standing at the end of Mark 4 at the edge of Capernaum in the Sea of Galilee. And he looks at his disciples and he says to them, as he points over to the community that was up on top of that big cliff, a community called the Decapolis, let's go over there. And something that I learned there that I didn't know is that the the Jews, especially in that first century, but even still to a certain extent today, they consider large bodies of water metaphorical for the abyss. Because that's where Jonah went when he did the wrong thing, right? And that's where the Egyptians were swallowed up after they chased after the Israelites when the Red Sea parted, let my people go, that whole story. The Egyptians followed after them, the water swooped them up. We know it happened in the days of Noah. There's lots of reasons why they would come to those conclusions, but they believe that large bodies of water were metaphorical for the abyss. So the first thing they probably thought when Jesus said, hey, we're going to go across the Sea of Galilee over there to the Decapolis, the first thing they thought, whatever disciples think when they're sad, like, gosh darn it, Jesus, we've got to cross the abyss. Golly jeepers, Jesus. Just kidding. The second thing that they might have thought of is they knew what we don't necessarily know from reading the scriptures, but you can certainly research and find out. Archaeologists have now excavated that on the top of the Decapolis, those people were worshiping the gods of fertility and wine. So you can imagine what their Sunday morning services were like, right? So the disciples are like, "Mm, we got to cross the abyss and then we're going to the Decapolis. What in the world are they going to do in the Decapolis? But Jesus had invited them to engage in a gospel storyline. So they got inside of that boat and they began across the abyss. And the abyss did to them what the abyss will do every single time you follow his will for your life. It will kick itself up in your face. It will try to oppose you or stop what you're doing. And it did it in the form of a storm. And I 
I don't know what you do when you find yourself in the middle of a storm while you're pursuing what you thought was God's will for your life. But here's what my two first reactions almost always are. The first thing I almost always try to do is tell the wind and the waves to go away by themselves. Like, please stop raining. Wind, blow away. I'm I'm, I'm on my way to do something that God asks me to do. And the second thing that I often find myself doing is just turning around and saying, it's too hard, like I was saying earlier. It's just too hard. This cannot be what God has for me. Fifteen years of ministry, one of the most challenging things I've ever been asked to do was facilitate the adoption of Josh Greer. Not because of Jeff and Debbie, but because the wind and the waves blew so hard during that season, it was undeniable. We found ourselves over and over again in the middle of a sea with a crazy storm around us. And I tried to tell the wind and the wave to calm down by myself. I tried to tell them, let's go back to shore till this thing clears, blows over. But Jesus Christ had called us to facilitate an adoption of a little boy. And the only thing that parted that, the only thing that stopped that storm was the word out of his mouth. That's exactly what Jesus teaches us. Because here's what happens. They find themselves in the middle of this boat on the way from Capernaum over to Decapolis. The winds and the waves and the storm came in the middle, opposed what they were up to. And Jesus taught them exactly what he teaches us when we read the accounts and exactly set himself up perfectly for what he was about to go do in the Decapolis. He silences the storm with the word out of his mouth. The word that he has gifted to us that we can consume like a lion would its prey. When he told the wind and the wave to be obedient, it was, it calmed down. They continued on over to the shore of the Decapolis. It says in Mark chapter 5, verse 1, that Jesus gets out of the boat and goes into the Decapolis. It never tells us the disciples get out of the boat. I think it's safe for us to assume they did not. Jesus, while he walks up into the Decapolis, he's met there on a hillside by a man who's named Legion. He's named Legion because he had been so fully possessed by so many demons that he was called Legion. He had been chained right prior to that over to a graveyard I mean at some point he had to have had friends and family in the community he definitely still had breath in his lungs and blood pumping through his heart he was still fully alive but he was so out of it so completely out of it they considered him already dead and they chained him up to the graveyard just tell the whole thing just finished itself off But he was empowered by the demons that were inside of him. He broke from those chains and he met Jesus on that hill. Jesus looks looks at him, knows instantly what's going on, looks around him. There was a hillside full of 2,000 pig we now know archaeologists have excavated. Thousands of pig bones on those altars of the gods of fertility and wine. We now know that's what they sacrificed to their gods. That's why there were 2,000 of them right there. So Jesus cast those demons into those 2,000 pigs who went flying off that cliff I saw down into the Sea of Galilee. And I love the picture that the disciples were too afraid to get out of the boat to go up into the Decapolis. They're just sitting down there waiting for Jesus to finish whatever he's doing. Then all of a sudden, 2,000 demon-possessed pigs come flying over their heads. Like, like next time, just get yourself out of the boat, right? You know, like. And then that man did exactly what we would have done had that been us. He looked at Jesus, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 18 through 20. He looks at Jesus and says, can I go with you? It says, as Jesus was getting back into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said instead, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. 
So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Then Jesus got back in his boat, he crossed back over the abyss, and he went home to Capernaum, it tells us in the next verses. He did all that abyss crossing for one person that everybody else had counted out of the game. But there's not one of us that are ever left out of the game. And the first time my heart fully captured that story, it reminded me of the parable of the shepherd that had a hundred sheep. You know that story? Shepherd had a hundred sheep and one of them got away. And, and I always read that story thinking to myself, man, if I was like a herds girl and I had 99 out of my 100 sheep in the same place, I think I would be saying I was a pretty good herds girl. But we serve a shepherd that doesn't even want one of us to be lost. So it tells us that he leaves those 99 and he goes out and search for the one, not satisfied till he finds it. When he finds it, he picks it up and puts it around his shoulders and celebrates, brings it home. There's 148 million orphans around the world. This year they're estimating the World Health Organization. They're going to bump the number to 163. Millions and tens of millions of orphans around the world. Every last one of them I know has spent their entire life feeling like one that's separated from a party of 99 going on somewhere. And they're curious as they look behind them, is there anybody coming out after me? And he has sent us, the church, in response to that. Anyway, if that was the only story, if that was the only, if that was all we knew about the Decapolis, that would be enough for me. Enough for me to follow a shepherd who doesn't want to leave even one of us behind. But there's more we can learn about that. You, if you keep reading in the Gospels, the next time we read about the Decapolis is when Jesus passes through there on his way to Jerusalem the week of Passover. And it says he's met in the Decapolis by a crowd of believers. So we know right off the bat that little young missionary already has some first fruit in his ministry. That's pretty cool because he had to go back and tell the family and friends that chained him up to the graveyard. Not exactly the most receptive audience. And if you go home and like Google the Decapolis, you can find out that they've excavated some plaques dating to the first century. So within the first hundred years in that little community, there were some people, some physicians who had plaques dedicated to them because they were martyred for giving their services to the poor. And I think I've been calling God my story weaver for a long time. I think he's weaving my story into your stories. I think he's weaving your stories into each other. I think that I think he's weaving our stories for ways and places and people and events that we can't see and won't be privy to until we get to the other side of eternity. But I think the story weaver, when he was crossing the abyss the first time and he felt the wind and the waves come up against him and he told them that they can go right back where they came from, I think he had in his mind the legion who he was going to meet, but I also think he was thinking about the people that were going to receive services from the physicians who were going to eventually be martyred for his name's sake and get that white robe when they get up there because they heard the story from legion that he was thinking about the people who were going to receive services of the poor and the way that they were going to understand in a new and a fresh way the mercy they could receive at Jesus Christ and who they were going to go out and tell. And I think he was looking at all of those things when he crossed the abyss for one. And if you Google further... In the year 400 A.D., a man named the Bishop of Decapolis penned something that I bet some of you in the room know today by heart. It's called the Nicene Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our begotten Lord, and it goes on and on. And this morning, that is being recited in seven continents. That is still fruit being born from a ministry of a man that everybody else counted out of the game. Not one of us is out of the game.
I know that this is a church of abyss crossing. I've heard your stories about how you are crossing abysses in your classroom and in your sports field and in your office park and in your neighborhood and in your extended community, extended family and in your immediate family. I know that you are abyss crossers. And I'm telling you, I fully understand the temptation to get in the middle of a storm and decide to just go home until the wind dies down. But you... We have to understand that we submit to a story weaver. We submit to a shepherd who's looking at far more than the events that we find ourselves in today. I have told Jeff and Debbie a hundred times God's going to do unbelievable things with Jeff, with Josh Greer. Because the story weaver kept calling us through the storm. Kept calling us through the storm because he wanted us on the other side. Not just so Jeff and Debbie could have another son because they knew who was going to hear his story. And what impact that event was going to have in the next 100 years and the next 400 years and the next 2,000 years should the Lord choose to leave us here this long. The, the, the abyss that you're being called to cross over today to share your life, your story, your peace, your hope, your joy. Don't count yourself out of a game because of anything you have done by your own hand or by the hand of somebody else. There is not one worthless circumstance that we have encountered that he cannot extract the precious from and then use it to enrich the ministry life that he has called us to have. Well, this, um, I'm going to finish with this little story. Todd and I have nine children. I don't know if that's come up yet. Um, we have uh, three biological children, three foster children, and three adopted children. Two of our foster daughters have been in our life uh, almost 15 years now, about 14 of those years. They lived um, in an orphanage, eight of them, and they've lived with us um, the last several years in a row. And uh, they're currently 15 and 17 years old. And they have an extended family that has never been interested in their life before. Um, but the girls are now old enough that they could go into their extended family business, which just for the sake of time and the fact that we're in a church, I won't go into a lot of detail. But um, let's just say it would not be in their best interest. And so these people began to call us this last year, making some threats. They wanted the girls to drop out of school, move in with them, and begin to help them with their business. And I... I became very afraid because we certainly had had no contact with them for a decade plus, And I knew a little bit about their family history and what that might mean for them. And I knew that if I got in front of a judge or, I don't know, like a, a committee of people or even a sympathetic social worker, I'd be able to explain to them the longevity of our history with them, the stability of our home, the projection of education we were going to provide for their future. I'd be able to do all of that. And I knew in the long run with an educated group of of uh, professionals, I'd be able to explain to them why our home was the better choice for these girls to finish out the few short years they had left in their childhood. But I wasn't sure, as she began to make threats about being next to kin and all that, that if so, she brought some authorities to my door as they investigated all of that. They would remove those girls from our care and then expose them to the very things I'd spent my lifetime trying to protect them from. I wasn't really sure the little blonde ponytail would win in a foreign country. And so on a Monday last spring, I got a phone call from uh, kind of the ringleader, and she began with a string of explicatives and then told me that they were coming on Friday with the authorities, and if I didn't turn over the girls to them, that I should be expecting myself a fight. 
And I did what anybody would have done in my situation. I called up the lady who took care of them the eight years they lived in an orphanage. She's a woman named Martha Rojas. She's been running this orphanage. She's in her early 70s, actually mid-70s now. And she, um, gosh, she's walked with Jesus so long, so hard, so beautifully. I like to be around her. In fact, I like to, like, rub up against her, which is kind of awkward, but she's gotten used to it over time. I just, I want some of her perspective on Jesus to rub off on me. She's seen him be faithful in thousands of situations, and it's built up into her a sense of peace that passes any of my understanding. And I'm always, always looking to get more of her. So I called her, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, they said they're going on Friday, and they're going to bring the authorities, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring every visitor log these people ever signed. I want you to bring all the kindergarten records you had to go get, the pictures they drew for your refrigerator. I want you to bring every report, every everything, every piece of documentation you can find that said that they've never, ever, ever, ever had an interest in the girls, and I'll bring everything on my end. And then if we have some people come to our door, we'll just, shoot, we'll just hold court right there. We'll just start. We'll just talk them to death. We'll show them everything that we have. And, then, then, and I'm like, will you please come? And she was, she's like calm as a cucumber. She's like, yes, I'll be there. So four days later, I knew they were coming around 4 o'clock on Friday afternoon, 3.30. She pulled into our house, into our ministry gate. And I went and met her at the car. And she had this great big bag in the back seat. And when she got it out, I thought to myself, that is a very good sign. Look how big that thing is. 30 minutes later, these folks pulled into our front yard. And the, the best way to describe it is they were like an angry mob of bees. They like got out of the car like kind of over here. And as soon as they got out of the car, the threats started coming, and they were yelling and shouting, and it felt really dark, and I couldn't get, there was like disorder. I couldn't get control of the space. Like, and I'm like trying to pull them into the house. I'm like, would anybody like some iced tea? You know, I'm like all trying to be like, come on, come on. It wasn't really working. I get them inside. The acoustics of our concrete house made it even louder, 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 and I, I couldn't get control of the floor. Lots of fighting already happening. So I stood on top of a chair, and at the top of my lungs, I yelled, I think Martha has something she wants to say. And everybody stops. And Martha, she's got some beady little eyes, you know. She can quiet a room with children in, like, no time flat. So I'm like, bring out the eyes. I look over at her like, okay. And she reaches it down into her bag, and I can literally remember thinking, bring it on. Get out the visitor log right now. That is the smoking gun. Get it. Bring it on. She reaches down into her bag, and when she comes back up, she's got a Bible in her hand. Which, that's fine. I mean, I'm a big fan of the Bible, but, like, they, they don't share our faith. You know, I wasn't really sure where she was going with that. She's just not talking, not looking. She opens up her Bible right down to the middle, finds herself in Psalm chapter 1. She begins to read about a tree planted in streams of water in season. It bears fruit. It's a beautiful psalm. And everybody was really quiet. And when she finished, I remember thinking, it does feel like the air had changed a little bit. It's just a little bit more peaceful. And then I remember thinking, now get yourself a visitor log. She's looking up. She's not looking at them. She's looking at the little missionary girl she had a message for. She's like, I'm like, and she's like, looks at me with the beady eyes and then goes right back down. She starts reading Psalm 2, which is a nice psalm, not nearly as quote about why do the nations plot in vain and conspire against me. I don't know. It's nice, but I wasn't sure where we were going. Finishes Psalm 2, doesn't even take herself a breath, goes into Psalm 3. Psalm 3, into Psalm 4, into Psalm 5, into Psalm 6, into Psalm 7, into Psalm 8. We're like at 25 minutes now. I mean, 
I like political things. I remember thinking, like, we're in a spiritual filibuster because eventually these people got to go to the bathroom. They got to eat. Like, there are a lot of psalms in this book. Like, <laughs> she starts into Psalm 9, goes into Psalm 10. When she starts the beginning of Psalm 10, I could tell we were going somewhere because this the cadence in her voice kind of changed a little bit. She gets right down into Psalm 10, and she reads at the end of Psalm 10, verses 17 and 18, You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them, and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. And she closes her Bible, and she looks up at them, and she said, These little girls are daughters of the King Most High. They don't belong to us any more than they belong to you. You ask these little girls where their king has whispered for them to be. And the big one, she's kind of feisty. She was like, a key, which means here. And the little one's like, a key. And it wasn't really like they stood up and shook my hands and said, nice to meet you. Now, I don't want to give you a false impression. But they did start moving again. They pushed their chairs out from their their tables and they started yelling and shouting and but they were kind of backing up a little bit. So I skirted my little self around them to open the front door. And they start backing up, backing up, backing up. They're saying all these things. And there was like a, tr- a car that they, several of them had gotten into. They get in their car and they're saying all kinds of things. And I could tell like, okay, they're leaving. So I go and open up the gate to our ministry compound. And then they go flying out of the gate. And I'm just like staring at their taillights like, I cannot believe what I just saw. I, I mean, I, I was beside myself. I threw off my shoes. I went running over to Martha. I was like, you did it, you did it, you did it, you did it, you did it. Like, I was just like, like ready to give her a big hug, like rub up against her, like, you did it. And she, she had one more lesson left to teach. She grabbed her Bible, which I promise you is a whole lot bigger than this one. And she stuck that thing right up into my nose. And she said, you listen to me, Eha. Don't you ever forget This is the only sword you take into your battles. And I'm telling you, I have never forgotten that. This is the start of every show. It is, he set up the whole system from the very beginning. So it's not ever dependent on what the person who comes to the table brings to it. He says it takes the faith of a mustard seed to move a mountain. Do you know what he was looking at when he said that? He was standing on the Mount of Olives. And he was looking right across from the Mount of Olives is a man-made mountain called the Herodian. It was built by a man named Herod, who was, in Jesus' day, his opposition. Herod built himself a a mountain. It's the most ridiculous-looking thing ever. It's, like, perfectly flat at the top. He looked around to the people, and he said, It takes the face of a mustard seed to tell the mountain to move, and it will go into the sea. The sea is the abyss. The mountain is more than dirt and rocks. It's the things that come against us. He set it up. It is not. I am not the star of any show. You are not the star of any show. Jeff is not the star of any show. Grace Chapel is not the star of any show. He will do what he's going to do independent of the source who comes to you. All you need to do is consume the word of God like a lion would its prey. Pull it inside of you and, and do more than just meditate on it for a few minutes once a week. Or every morning or on Sundays, but consume it like a line would its prey so that when you feel the mountain come up against you, when you feel the storms come up against you, when you feel the abyss bumping up against the gospel storyline he's called you to, you have in your hand 
the word of God. This is the sword we take into our battles. This is what will always make the way. They, it has to obey him. That's the way he set it up. He has already won the victory. The gospel is not about what we get to go out and do. The gospel is about what he has already done. All we do is remind the enemy from that which he has come and he will return. And then we continue to be about the work of restoration and reconciliation and redemption and rescue and repair. Okay, my last thing, because you've got to go have lunch. In Exodus chapter 15, this is the story of the Israelites that were underneath the thumb of Pharaoh. I mean, okay, we get any more opposition than that, right? And then Moses is like, let my people go. Finally, after several plagues, if you don't know that story, read it in Exodus or ask Jeff or one of your life group leaders to lead, the, lead you in an understanding of that time period. Finally, after the death of the firstborn son of Pharaoh, he tells the people, get out of here. Just get out of here. Go. So these folks have been under slavery and oppression for, I mean, their whole entire lives. Finally, the one that has been oppressing them tells them to go. So they stop by their houses, if they weren't home already, and head towards the edge of the sea. And you know that story, right? The Red Sea parts. They pass through it. I am struck by the story of Miriam. Let's tell you that. They get on the other side, like the Red Sea parts. They all cross. The waters, the abyss crosses back over that which is opposing them. They get swept away, the Egyptians. The Israelites find themselves minute one of their freedom. And here's what happens. Then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. And it goes on to say Miriam's song, or the worship songs they sang. I read that. I pack all the time. I travel all the time. I'm always packing, thinking, what do I need to take with me? What do I need? If I had been under slavery and oppression my entire life, and I had a few minutes to put some things together on my way out to the rest of my life, I'm thinking in my backpack I might put myself like an extra pair of shoes or a sack of flour or like an important family memento. I'm not sure that I would have had the wherewithal that Miriam had. I'm going to pack my praise and worship instruments because although I can't see what's going to happen, at the point that she packed her tambourine in her knapsack, she had no idea the Red Sea was going to part. She was trusting in a God who had a storyline for her that she had yet to see. And she was ready for it when, he was ta- when it was time to praise him. And this morning, I, I, I know, I didn't get to say this last part in the last service, but I know in my spirit that there's someone in this room who has to pack a tambourine right now for something that they don't know yet what it's going to look like. You haven't seen the Red Sea yet part. But you're going to be trusting and believing in a God who's pulling you from one place to another. Pack the instrument. Anticipate the movement of God. Believe that he will do what he needs to do in the middle of the abyss to get you on the other side so that you can continue to follow the gospel storyline that you know in your spirit he has called you to do. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you so much that even when we haven't seen yet the ways that you'll part the seas in our life and the ways in which you will use our stories a hundred years 400 years, 2,000 years from now. Lord, we can trust and hope in you, the story weaver, who's moving our life into a tapestry that is eternal in nature. Lord, only you could take preciousness out of the worthlessness we find ourselves in and use it for a greater good. 
Use it to allow us to be a spokesperson to a wider audience. Use it to tell more people about the light and goodness that, you, that we have experienced in you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the word of God that you've given us. Thank you that we have the privilege of consuming it like a line would its price. Thank you, Jesus. Help us never, ever to take advantage of the gift that you've given us and rely on our own strengths or think it's what we bring to the table. Thank you, Lord, that you are moving mountains on our behalf even yet today. May we trust you with the abysses you've called us to cross. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.